Welcome to the Inkwell Podcast. Today we have part two of our interview with Scott Brisbane. Scott is currently practicing craniosacral therapy out of the Australian Shiatsu College in Brunswick, Victoria. He has studied and taught traditional Chinese medicine and acupuncture, as well as naturopathy and flower essences. He also has a weekly Drew Yoga class that he teaches and he explores various meditation techniques as part of his personal practice. We are also joined by Jeremy Nemer. Jeremy has been practicing Japanese acupuncture for over 10 years. He is a conceptual artist who has studied a broad range of disciplines and practices. He is also a highly trained martial artist with a background in Taekwondo and is currently a second Dan black belt in a traditional form of Jiu Jitsu from Japan. Through his own self-treatment and experimentation, he has developed an exceptional knowledge of the human body. And to lead us into the show today, we have Melbourne band Miso, who have recently reunited, which has brought a lot of excitement and joy to their fans. Uh, the music you'll hear on today's podcast is some of their older work from their first release. And if you're interested in hearing what they're up to these days, you can find them at soundcloud.com slash tuneintomiso. You can also find them on Facebook. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Firstly, I just wanted to ask you about pregnant clients. I had a client recently who is pregnant, and we were taught at the Shiatsu College about contraindications for pregnancy, like a gallbladder 21, large intestine 4, and other descending points. What are your thoughts on treating pregnant women, and are there any dangerous things you can do as a therapist? Yeah, there's dangerous things that you can do with pregnant women, and um, but just, just firstly, there's classically, and um, Jeremy might have another sort of um, view, but uh, <coughs> the way I was taught, classically there are four points to avoid in pregnancy, especially early pregnancy, but uh, all the way through pregnancy, and it's large intestine four, bladder 60, bladder 67, and um, spleen six. Which, which is interesting, by the way, bladder 67, which is on the little toe, which is the last point on the meridian, uh, um, in late pregnancy they use it to um, help uh, turn the fetus when, the, when the, um, the baby is breech or presenting breech. Yeah, and I've heard that these contraindications are only really an issue for really deep needling techniques. Uh, would you agree with that, or do you think that even with gentle pressure, uh, these points are something that you should be concerned about? Uh, you shouldn't be concerned about it because uh, a lot of people don't know they're pregnant, especially in very early pregnancy. They can be up to six weeks pregnant and sometimes even more. And um, I've treated people when they haven't known they're, they're pregnant, and I've used uh, these points, and probably on multiple occasions, and it hasn't stopped them being pregnant. So even though the contraindications there, the contraindications are there because um, they're probably more relevant in a susceptible individual. There's there's a uh, there's a real um, 
a diversion here, Link, <laughs> another diversion with regards to, you know, like I have uh, been practising over a, a kind of like a 25-year period, which has been kind of interesting. Um, in the early 1990s, one of my patients got pregnant when I was treating her for something else altogether, only to find out later that she'd been trying for several months or a year or whatever to try, try and get pregnant. And she kind of got pregnant while I I was treating her with acupuncture and uh, then she sent somebody else along and this was kind of in the early days of IVF or relatively early days of IVF this is the early 90s and this woman was trying to get pregnant and um, so I was treating her through her IVF cycle and um, I happened over over you know like a, a 18 months two years to see a few people who were trying to get pregnant or were experimenting with acupuncture and there's some early evidence out that acupuncture was helpful with regards to fertility issues and um, at not one stage did I think there might be a market in this <laughs> <laughs> and I missed the boat <laughs> because the uh, acupuncture fertility clinics have sprung up all over the place and these guys are supposedly uh, specialists in the area and I kind of, um, I'm sorry to all those people that practice uh, in these clinics and no doubt there is some um, specialist attention um, happening and uh, updating of knowledge that has occurred but uh, Chinese medicine and acupuncture has always been really good and uh, a good treatment is always a good treatment and, and treating the person as they come rather than their Western diagnosis of infertility. Um, what's important is the person in front of you. Yeah. That's the diversion. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so uh, I was taught a very similar set of uh, contraindicated points, but we had uh, liver three as well. Uh but I think uh, fundamentally, because uh, in school I got taught 30 points and they told us this whole system, you know, in the first six weeks, it, these points are okay. And then towards the end of the pregnancy, like three quarters of your common points, they, they suggested are contraindicated. Yeah, I got that. Was, what, what school was that, Jeremy? Uh, ACM, Australian College of Natural Medicine, uh, but which is a horrible factory of a school. Uh, By the way. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just FYI. Uh, but... Uh, I think it comes from a theoretical because we couldn't. We were given this list, but no one knew where the list came from. You know, it's just this kind of like a rumor. And I think fundamentally, it comes from a, a lack of understanding of acupuncture as a medicine, as opposed to a, like an allopathic medicine. Uh, because obviously, if you've got um, high blood pressure and you give someone a pill that increases their blood pressure, you're going to cause massive problems. Uh, but if someone has high blood pressure and you use a point that's supposed to help with high blood pressure. Uh, with low blood pressure, it's not going to increase their blood pressure. Like we're not, we're not doing these things which are forcing the body to do something counter to its normal operation. Yeah. Uh, so if points function like that, of course you wouldn't want to use these points because if you use a descending point, uh, the body will just descend. But if you use a descending point and the person's uh, energy isn't stagnating upwards, the descending point isn't going to have a descending function. Like it, that's not how the points work. Mm. So, yeah, points are kind of like balancing. They're, they're kind of like, uh, it's, I'm try I want to say the word homeostatic in kind of the way they actually 
behave in the body. I always sort of approach it from the point of view that the point knows what to do. And uh, from that point of view, I'm kind of interested in one of the really common questions, diversion number 26, um, uh, one of the common questions that I get is is whether um, we should be uh, reducing or tonifying and uh, what, what are the shiatsu terms for deficiency yeah, in excess? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously well entrenched into the shiatsu student by the time they get to my class in second year and uh, they want to know about tonification and reduction. Whereas I've always been kind of like a... Um, and 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 you know always might be a slight exaggeration, but uh, I learnt quite quickly that um, a balance technique is really nice, and that is that if you actually tune into the needle, you tune into the person, and you. It might be intuitive, but I kind of think it's teachable as well. It's kind of like let the point do the work not necessarily the practitioner have some special super duper technique or anything. Is that in relation to whatever the point is, you connect with it in a sense? You get a, a depth or a feeling of... Absolutely. You, the, 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 the practitioner should know themselves and that's the best way of knowing the client because there are a number of cues that you get in your own body when actually the right time is and when and the right pressure and the right um, stimulation and, and whether to hold or whether to release or whether to pull back or whether to go a little bit deeper. You know, like it's about being present. Are there any obvious ones or are they different for each person like this is getting a bit perhaps like telepathic or empathic but if you feel a particular sensation in your own body or you you, you learn the sensations yourself because it's your body and um, like one of the things that uh, I noticed when I was in early practice is that when um, something good was happening in my client's body I would breathe out I would like sigh so my breath was uh, breath was the first kind of sign um, that I noticed of um, a, a good connection, and that what's actually happening is um, is good for the client. Yeah, I make no 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 claims to how good I was back then, or or bad, or otherwise, but. Um, I do make a claim now that you know, like a lot of the therapeutic process is about um, uh, the practitioner being really sort of. Um, uh, knowledgeable of who they are and uh, and where they are and um, having a good sense of their own self and their own body and then they come from that to treat and they're helping the person to know who they are and have a good sense of their body and to enhance their ability to heal and heal themselves. I was talking to a friend about the Shiatsu College Diploma course and being that it is a two-year course, I was suggesting that perhaps it could be a little longer uh, and this might scare some people off from doing it. But this year I had a really strong focus on self-cultivation and changing my body by treating myself through self-shiatsu and other techniques like meditation and stretching and even training martial arts. And I've learned so much this year from taking this approach. Do you think it would be useful to have more classes devoted to that kind of self-cultivation in shiatsu or acupuncture courses in general? Yeah, Link, um, I kind of think that, you know, like um, one of the things that I am at heart is, is an educationalist. You know, like I kind of like the process of education and I think about the process of education a lot. And uh, the Australian Shiatsu College, you know, they employ me and um, I'm really grateful for the work, to tell you the truth. And um, 
I'm happy to be their servant, but uh, one of the good things about the college is that they um, uh, really accept a whole bunch of differing views and, and they've always accept, uh, accepted a, a healthy debate when it comes to um, me. You know, if I've actually thought that there's something that they're doing which I don't agree with, they give me a good listening, then tell me to bugger off and they do what they want to do. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel I feel honoured by the process. Look at the way I look look at the course, and and I don't know the whole structure of the course. So from the from the point of view of not knowing the whole structure of the course, I really can't comment. I kind of know a fair bit about second year because I teach in second year, and um, the way I look at the course, I w- I would um, change it and take out a number of the theoretical subjects and uh, make it um, more practical. I'm not, I'm, I'm not actually sure, Link, that whether the Chinese medicine component of the course is that great for what you're trying to produce. Well, this is why I wanted to touch on the classical versus traditional Chinese medicine issue. Uh, one of the biggest issues I had after finishing the diploma course at the Shiatsu College was that I learned all these different techniques, which was very interesting and wonderful. But it seems like some of the components almost contradicted each other. Like initially we were taught a TCM based pulse system and the Hara diagnostic system in Shiatsu is interesting as well. But then I got the impression that our Scott Billings, our pulse diagnostic teacher, doesn't use this system of pulse diagnosis or Hara diagnosis. And instantly there was this strange feeling in me. So I asked, well, what kind of diagnostic system do you use? And he said, oh, I use this Japanese system. So then I wondered, why would I want to learn a TCM-based diagnostic system when there is a, a Japanese system that would seem to relate more directly to shiatsu? Yeah, you, you should be careful, Link, because you're talking too much sense, you know, like and as- asking, asking the right questions. <laughs> well, yeah, and when I asked Scott Billings this, he gave me a very diplomatic facial expression, that uh, cheeky smirk that Mr. Billings has. And uh, yeah, when I finished the diploma course, I thought I've been given all these various things and I can choose what I want to keep and focus on and, and choose the path I want. And that that's cool. Um, but if I'd been given a consistent diagnostic and treatment system, then it would have been way less confusing. I'm not sure that you need a, a diagnostic theory at all. Uh, I think that, you know, if you were to all of a sudden say, look, you know, like we're going to revamp the entire Australian Shiatsu College course, um, then I think that everything is open to staying and that everything is open to actually being given the boot. Uh, I think that that would make sense if there was a total revamp to occur. Like, for example, um, Tracy teaches uh, barefoot in first year. I know that, yeah, and I know that she does the clinic stuff as well. And I love Tracy, and she does um, eight extras. Love her approach. Not sure that eight extras should be on the um, Australian Shiatsu. Uh, second year curriculum though it seems to me like eight extras that Tracy should be teaching that as a um, postgrad thing why is that um because I reckon the eight weeks could be used better (laughs) (laughs) actually yeah Uh, more along the lines of the stuff which uh, perhaps we're alluding to now you know like whether it's more um the practitioner knowing themselves I think that one of the deficiencies at the college um and and Really, you know, like uh, uh, if I'm to be careful, you know, like I I should say that, you know, like I I don't know the full curriculum and mention that again. But I 
believe that the uh, most important thing that's happening with a shiatsu therapist is actually the contact between the two people, the patient and the client, uh, the, the, the practitioner and the client. It's, it's the relationship that you're actually having with that client and that um, the touch that you're applying and uh, the contact that's actually happening, the energy that's actually happening um, and 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 uh, the last words, the most important word from the point of view that you know, like everyone's talking about chi. You know, like the whole first year, you have this a massive component of you know, like Chinese medicine, chi, yang, blood, yin, and nobody's felt the stuff. None of them have felt the stuff. You know, each year, you know, like what's your idea of chi? You know, like and they've got everyone's got ideas, but like there's not much. Um, personal experience of it. There's there's not much um, dialogue around it. There's not much. Whereas you know, like I think it's really important. I'd like the students to come out with a a, um, a thorough grounding in their felt experiences of chi in themselves and their clients, and that would be good. That would be amazing. I don't know whether it's achievable, but like I'd really like to aim for it. And I think it probably is. And I'll just say the Shiatsu College definitely has a focus on self-cultivation. We definitely did some classes uh, that address these things. And the weekend workshops with Hendrika that were much more about, you know, the relationship to the clients and ourselves and that kind of stuff. So it is addressed. So I guess the emphasis of the amount of time spent in these areas is... It's kind of like a shotgun approach to learning. <laughs> don't know whether it's a shotgun or, or, or maybe a scattergun, you know, like um, uh, from the point of view that sometimes I actually think that if I was to actually design the new Shiatsu College course, and I'm not even a Shiatsu practitioner, <laughs> but nevertheless, I'd give it a crack. <laughs> <laughs> but no, uh, but or, or but at least be part of that process of of perhaps rebuilding it. I think that you know, like um, I'd be really interested in um, completely and totally getting rid of the Chinese medicine component, and that would just do me out of a job, you know. <laughs> but I'd be interested in it from the point of view of what the shi- what I feel like the shiatsu practitioner should have and shouldn't have, and I think I alluded to it, you know, ten minutes ago. I'm not completely sure whether the shiatsu practitioner should have the kind of grounding that they get at the shiatsu college in Chinese medicine. And by the way, it's a good grounding. It's, it's quite solid, actually. Oh yeah. So uh, obviously there are uh, political things. Uh, so uh, to to give an accreditation, you have to do a certain number of certain hours and across certain things, and the state has to sure. tick and, off and, these and things. The, and the college has to actually, um, you know, since they've become kind of like uh, under the TAFE umbrella, mm. they've had to include interesting things like occupational health and safety and um, how to make money doing this and uh, business. Uh, they've always run the business principles and it's a smart thing to actually try and teach yeah. your students business principles and stuff. Totally. But, oh, so tedious. Mm. 
<laughs> yeah, so to, to talk more about my horrible school, uh, one of my friends was there under a scholarship. Uh, and But the, the meaning of the scholarship was that uh, she was obliged to attend all the open days and be like a diplomat for the school. But the other thing was she was pre-selected as one of the random students to talk to the education board. <laughs> And uh, so she she had some insight into the process of the creation of the the syllabus syllabi for the various courses, and basically it was a process of the school saying here's what we want to do, and the state saying no, that's terrible. Uh, you have to do at least uh, twenty more hours of this, forty more hours of that, and you need it all to be of a standard, maybe of one year higher in tertiary system. And then I love a bureaucracy. <laughs> and then our school would go well, and then they would improve things the tiniest amount, and they. Uh, they did this process seven or eight times just approaching the line which the state said until the like negotiation the state came in their direction and they ended up with something which was less than the state first asked but the state still signed off on it uh yeah so it, it's really hard to conceive of a per, uh, like a, an ideal educational system when you have to jump through these hoops which are created by the state and not by people who are similarly trying to teach what you're trying to do. Imagine that just for a moment that the bureaucracy was a person. Surely it just needs a bit of love. <laughs> for sure. And and a bit of relaxation. Like, don't worry so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just you know, like, just go to Bali <laughs> and we'll run our own course. <laughs> uh, yeah, and well, because TCM for uh, Shiatsu doesn't make sense to me at all uh, because it's based on the herbal system. So, whereas five elements theory is much more uh, applicable, uh, yes, yeah, so I don't know, an organ function as well, it's a bit different herbally than it is in, in terms of pure, I don't know what you call it, oriental physiology or whatever. So, yeah, I think they'd, they'd do well to create a Japanese medicine unit. Like, it's not that hard to do. What um, Are there schools of Japanese medicine? Like, there's, I guess, Toyahari is one, or is there, a, yeah, is there other sort of frameworks yeah there are heaps like there so and there are heaps of classical uh acupuncture style associations who have their own sort of tradition or whatever that comes out of a family or a particular clinic from you know whatever some time in the past uh so it, it wouldn't be that hard to compile like i have a book it's called uh principles of classical japanese acupuncture or something like that and it's fundamentally just a straight japanese medicine so because recently i've been wanting to get back into theory and you know i started reading the web that has no weaver again and, and various and I've got that Machocha book sitting there. But they're just they're just seeming to be kind of silly for me to read at the moment. I mean I know the web that has no weaver is a good book, but perhaps I'd be better suited just going straight to this book that you're talking about. Yeah, maybe. But I think just from on a personal level, uh where you're at right now, there's a book called Statements of Fact in T C M. Bob Flaws was the editor. And it's just he's just gone through all the classics and taken the aphoristic statements of, of fact in TCM, like, um, you know, like sp the spleen produces blood and, you know, like just these fundamental statements. And the idea being that if you if you wrote, memorize these, then you have a theoretical framework that you can refer to if you have a question. Like, there's a blood thing. Oh, I know spleen does blood. Liver does this in the blood. Heart does this in the blood. So it's, it's kind of a, a fundamental way of learning the oriental medicine theory as opposed to, yeah, like less principle-based theory. It's more like learn the symptom patterns of what's damp, cold, and you know, blah, blah, this kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, which is less relevant, I think, in, in a problem-solving sense. So, yeah, I don't know. That's where I can start. <laughs> um, all right, I'm going to throw it over to one that you seem to light up with, was astrology. 
Now, um, it's another one of my favourites to, um, yeah, to explore and to make certain people roll their eyes and, and glass over and stop listening to me. But um, what what kind of astrology are you interested in? Is there a particular school of thought, or where do you lean? Uh, yeah, I became interested in astrology when I was in my early 20s, so it was quite a while ago, and I was interested in um, astrology uh, before I was interested in natural therapies. And interestingly, you know, like I, I can remember in the first uh, course that I was doing back uh, in the day, my first degree, I had a, uh, an assignment to do, and somehow came it came about that um, I wanted to do my assignment on astrology just so as I could debunk it. <laughs> and um, so I think I wrote the essay or did the assignment and, and I don't know whether I'd managed to debunk it or whatever, but it, was, it wasn't that long after that that I came across a book. Friends of mine uh, said, you should have, have a look at this book, it's amazing. And it was a book by a, a well-known astrologer called Liz Green and the book that uh, they had was called Star Signs for Lovers, and it's actually been um, reproduced and later the name changed to Astrology for Lovers. And it's kind of like a bit of a... Um, it's a, a, the title, <coughs> excuse me, the title of the book is a bit crappy because it is one hell of a, a good fundamental uh, astrology book, and it's a Western astrology and um, that book was one of those books that kind of changed my life. And this is this is back in the 1970s, you know, from the point of view that I opened up the bit about uh, cancer. I'm a Cancerian and um, I, I read the first uh, one half, two pages about cancer in this particular book only to put the book down, you know, like with my mouth wide open and my eyes kind of like I'd glazed over and gone, oh, my God. She knows me. <laughs> she, she actually knows me, you know. Like, And I thought, oh, this is interesting because I thought I didn't believe in this. And uh, so I kind of devoured that book and it's still a fantastic fundamental text as far as I'm concerned, and Liz Green is an amazing astrologer. And uh, she came from a Jungian background. And um, she, uh, her later books were kind of really wordy. Uh, she's, a, she's a Virgo. I came across a, a, a herbal teacher at the um, uh, Southern School of Natural Therapies. And uh, while Liz Green never told anyone what um, her own personal astrology was, this person had actually seen Liz Green and she was born on exactly the same day that Liz Green was born on and so thus I know that Liz Green is a Virgo with a Scorpio moon and and uh, if you if you know your Western astrology you'd realise that uh, yeah so her, her books became quite um, intellectually intense for her astrology and I can understand that knowing Virgos and Scorpios yeah what star sign are you Link? I am a Libran according to, uh, I guess, the most commonly accepted... Yeah, the Western astrology, which is, which is my area of um, interest. Yeah. And um, you've had a look at my chart. Um, oh, I have. I, yeah. I've got it sort of coming back to me at, at, at this moment. Yeah, I wish I had it in front of me. Yeah. Well, we could read it out a little bit later. Um, but I, I guess my questions are in relation to how you 
how you use astrology like personally like relationship wise or just in terms of like what do you think are the practical uh, benefits of of astrology I know I know different um, um, astrological frameworks uh, kind of use astrology in different ways. For me, it was just a way of um, self-understanding and understanding kind of like um, this world and the people in it and uh, trying to get some sort of handle on um, what other people are like, really. It's kind of like a way of understanding the self and others. And giving you, I guess, a framework of... The differences, I guess, because some people, um, uh, this is from my perspective, some people I don't understand why they do what they do and they, they either frustrate me or they, you know, they, their actions, like I would never behave like that or I'd never do things that way. Um, and I've noticed that, yeah, some of these frameworks allow me to sort of have a bit more compassion, maybe even more understanding of, of what it's like to... Yeah. Look, I, I know somebody who, who said to me, and that was kind of quote unquote, you know, like uh, until I came across astrology, I thought everyone was just like me. But, you know, like only an Aries could really say that. <laughs> <laughs> and she was an Aries, but it was a really good quote, you know? Yeah. Um, I've got a couple of random questions in relation to it. Um are there any things uh, to avoid when someone is developing an interest in astrology? Like if someone is just getting into it, uh, are there any like common pitfalls that people who have an interest in astrology um, tend to fall into that are perhaps uh, not so beneficial? Yeah, my understanding is that Indian astrology is um, kind of like quite accurate in its predictive mode. Uh, Western astrology uh, seems to be much more like a psychological tool rather than necessarily an amazing um, sort of um, predictive tool. Divination tool. Yeah. Um, the pitfalls are reading the Herald Sun and the the women's magazines for, you know, like what's going to happen, the tall, tall dark stranger, you know, the, here are your lucky numbers type <laughs> thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you need to get yourself a few good books. Usually. My favorite part is that every star sign um, has has a phone number at the end that you can call to, <laughs> to to find out more about this random little paragraph he pulled out of his um, rear end. It would seem. Yeah. Look. Uh, look. Uh, I I don't know how I'd describe myself in my relationship with astrology, but like I, I'm I'm kind of. Um, serious about it like it one of the things that people who are interested in astrology need to understand is that um the thing that they actually know about themselves is usually their sun sign so you're a, you're a libra and i'm a cancer and jeremy you're a he's he's um aries <laughs> of course <laughs> And um, I feel pigeonholed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised you got that out of him, actually. <laughs> well, it was the only other sign that we actually mentioned in this previous preamble, which was kind of interesting. But nevertheless, um, uh, uh, oh, but I'm right at the start. Like I'm, I'm in the year I was born. I think I'm cuspal. So. Yeah, yeah, and and and. Um, it's really important for anybody who's kind of like sort of embarking on looking at astrology is that they understand that the moon sign is a really powerful force in um, Western astrology. The rising sign is a kind of 
kind of strong force as well. And then where all of the planets are actually placed as well, Mercury, Venus, Mars and uh, Jupiter, etc. on the way out to Pluto. And in modern astrology, they look at asteroids and various mathematical points as well. And um, if you if you look at uh, what some astrologers do, you know, like they've got massive uh, placements of various planets, asteroids, etc. in the chart, and it's become quite complex. I've kind of limited my um, knowledge to what the traditional astrology was, kind of like uh, twenty years ago. So I still stick to mainly the planets. The houses, there's a, yeah, it's complex enough the way I look at it, really. Yeah, yeah and this is um, one of the questions I was thinking of. Was, do you ascribe some kind of mechanism to the science itself? Like, do you think of it uh, in terms of physics, like in some kind of physical relationship between the planets or more of maybe like a pattern relationship between like the macro and the micro of, you know, the human being, the outside world. Like, do you bother with any of that sort of stuff or? Uh, no, I don't bother with it much at all. You know, I think what actually happened with astrology is that, and, I, and, and um, I'm not fantastic with um, the history of astrology, but like my, my sense of it has always been that, you know, what um, happened with astrology is that, uh, in the day where the astronomers uh, were looking at the sky, the astronomers were also kind of like, my understanding is the philosophers and, and the uh, doctors, and they were just the thinkers of the age. So they kind of just noticed that people that were born in a certain time of the year had certain qualities. So I think this about Chinese medicine as well. I tend to think that it was kind of like a practical thing, that it was kind of, it was born from observation. And then the theory is applied to these observations by theoreticians, I guess. Yeah, yeah, no, it was just a bit, it was, it was a build up of observations. Yeah. Once they actually worked out, you know, like, um, uh, you know, like uh, people who were born between, you know, late late June or around June 20 through to uh, July 20 had these various qualities. They realised that the sun was moving through a certain part of the sky at that time. And then they started looking at the moon, then they started looking at Mars and, and the, inner, <coughs> the inner planets that they could actually look at and they started to actually build a much more complex map of the human being. Um yeah, you know, I like I, I, I still think that observation is is a pretty amazing tool. Um, I think theory is kind of like um, theory. That's all it is, you know. And I guess astrology in itself is just a theory, but um, it's been a really good theory for me. One of the ways of actually testing astrology, I reckon, is um, is uh, what happens is, is the um, when a person is born, they kind of get a blueprint, or they get their what's what astrologers might call their chart, and it's a position of the planets uh, as they um, were aligned when that person was born, and it, and it, be, it kind of it's like almost a static map in some ways. Now the planets keep on moving around. And, you know, like it takes 28 years, for example, or 28 to 29 years for Saturn to actually return to the exact same point that it was in when that person was born. It's really interesting noticing 
what happens to people like in their late twenties? Right <laughs> yeah, when when people have what's called their Saturn return. Now, of course, we have a birthday every year. That's like a sun return. The sun returns to the exact same point in the sky that it was at when you were born, and uh, you have a birthday. Um, the moon returns every twenty nine days, um, but and uh, and some planets do, will not return in your lifetime because they have a, a, a nearly a three hundred year cycle, like Pluto. Um, Uranus, if you ever get to um, being 84 years old, you know, like you will have your Uranus return. Um, but there are significant points in a person's life, you know, like, and uh, um, so mapping what, what are called the transits of a person. So a Saturn return, Saturn returning to the place where you where it was when you were born is a significant moment. But um, at seven years, 14 years, 21 years, you have a, what are called a Saturn square or a Saturn opposition. So Saturn is actually at 90 degrees to the place it was when you were born and or 180 degrees. And all of these are kind of um, significant moments astrologically in a person's life and uh, that's just taking Saturn but you've got Uranus that's actually um, connecting with different parts of your chart you've got Pluto connecting with different parts of your chart the inner planets are sort of moving on and connecting with different parts of your chart it's kind of like a, um, a complex evolution that's actually occurring but what I do notice is that when there's something seriously heavy going on in a person's life something seriously transformed Formative going on in a person's life, it's usually you look at the chart and look at the transits and you can start to actually kind of have a language for that, an astrological language and a psych psychological language. Okay, yeah. So I'm really interested in... Um, uh, Jeremy's import. Like, uh, ha have you um, um, explored the area? I've thought about it a little bit, but I've because I, I like trying to find mechanical things, uh, mechanical causes and such. Uh, so I thought about it a bit, but I, I came to uh, I came to some stumbling blocks. Uh, my first way of thinking was pure, purely environmental things. Like, if you're born just before winter, then you're going to have a, a very different experience of life in the beginning of your life than someone who's born at the start of spring or summer and uh yeah so in one life you'll be inside a lot and in another life you might be outside a lot more you know so there are these yeah these en environmental things and so that kind of made sense to me but it doesn't make sense if you look at the whole world because people who are born on the same day they're in different seasons and blah 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 so it can't it, it can't be a, an environmental thing it has to be some yeah something else maybe maybe it's a gravity thing or yeah. Ah, so you're looking for the link that I wasn't interested yeah, in. Yeah, <laughs> totally, totally. Um, and yeah, so I, I guess gravity, uh, the gravitational forces of these planets might have some factor to do with it, uh, or it could just be time, you know, like uh, every organism has a, a inbuilt timing of itself, and so maybe a human being has a, a kind of astrological clock, and all of these other sh shapes of time inside of our solar system, they reflect this pattern. So, yeah, maybe it's it's just built into the, the organism of the human being, these periods, you know, 14 years about puberty and 21 years about early adulthood. And, you know, like, yeah, maybe it's it's like music. It's just the rhythm of our world. Um, that's kind of as far as I got with the trying to find some 
some explana- mechanical explanation for it. Uh, but yeah, I think it's fascinating, and I think it, it has a massive place in our culture that is frowned upon by um, the Church of Science, uh, because it is a psychology, and it is a way of talking to people about deep personal things. Like, if you're just having a random conversation with someone, you can't ask them what they think about you know, like these essential parts of human life. Uh, but if you ask them about their astrological sign, then all of a sudden you can start talking about uh, all of these fundamental things about, about life. It's like this door that can open anywhere. Uh, so I think in, in that way, just functionally, it's a great thing. In it. Uh, yeah. And that's where I see a lot of um, pathology in, in members of the Church of Science is that they, um, they feel like these areas of their life that they're not addressing or they're not able to, um, to look at properly because they don't have a symbolic relationship with reality. They don't have a, a way of ascribing uh, meaning to things that they cannot prove. Um, and so, obviously, they do. And most, I think everybody is uh, that I've met, generally speaking, are superstitious in various ways. They have dogmatic beliefs. They have biases. They have all these things. But if you're inclined to um, belittle that kind of behavior in other people, like say you're, you're really into bagging out people who are Christian or believe in God or all these sort of things, when you're then faced with these symbolic problems in your life, um, you don't have anywhere to turn and you might end up finding yourself on say like antidepressant drugs or or addressing things from a purely Western psychological perspective. And um, But sometimes all you really need to do is... Was, uh, Think about yeah your relationship either to the star signs or just to, to weird shit like like uh, angels and fairies and these oracle cards or runes or whatever it is like whatever tool you want to use to access this inner stuff. I guess Jung um, probably I, I haven't checked him out much, but Jung I guess touched on these sort of more archetype uh, things. So there is there is access for certain people to go there, but um yeah it's really interesting when I see people who are stuck in. Um, stuck in that in that in that uh in those problems um hey hey i just wanted to um <clears throat> i heard a uh, a story on the news just the other morning and you know the church of science that um we've um been putting in inverted commas with our fingers whenever we say the word <laughs> <laughs> it's becoming a real church there's a news item there's a there's a news there, there's a news item. Finally. Well, actu- actually, actually, it, it, it didn't sound too bad, yeah, really, from 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 the point of view that um, if you want if you wanted to go to a church, it sounded like uh, they were advertising it as the kind of church that you have with all the cool stuff, but none of the god stuff. You know, like and it kind of like they said we have lots of good singing, we have lots of congregations and getting together and rah 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 rah. It sounded sounded like fun you know like in lots of ways but it was a news item and it was only just the other day and i was sitting in the car listening to it to it and going oh that's interesting you know but yeah it's pretty much uh, i think they're calling themselves the church of atheists or something like that or the atheist church i've heard of some some atheist church and some human stuff and yeah i'm like i'm totally for like congregations of people getting together and celebrating life like that's fucking awesome if they're um talking about these these issues and and things but um, I definitely think there is uh, a very important aspect to ourselves that can be called God, that can be called, you know, some deeper awareness um, that 
that yeah, if left if left out of your framework of reality, um, causes really massive problems in your life that um, that are addressed. Yeah, I think it's kind of interesting that it's taken about three to four hours of conversation for somebody to drop the G word. <laughs> so well done, Link. You know, like, a, and and kind of like it was for me. It was like a a, a slight deepening and and. It was a good moment. I'm glad you actually said it from the point of view that, you know, like um, different people sit in different places with regards to the word God. And, um, like, I totally totally respect you for actually putting it in, into the microphone, you know, from, from that point of view because I did feel like actually um, it was an honest moment and like all moments. But... Um, no, the problem with the Church of Science, as we've been saying, is that it's an incredibly sceptical arm um, of individuals that kind of like look down on the rest of the population who, who, who we've been talking about and um, who, who have tooled themselves up with some really good tools which they call magical thinking or mysticism or, or rubbish or just bunk them, you know. Like, and, 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 it's, and it's sad. It's sad for them and it's sad for the people to be put on and it's sad for the people who have been put on to put it on to the, 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 the so-called sceptics as well, you know. There's no real dialogue happening because, you know, the sceptics don't kind of listen. Yeah, and I think uh, psychedelics are a useful um, bridge for, for some people who have that way of thinking. I had a friend who I used to um, argue a lot with about various sort of concepts or just, yeah, try to open him up to certain things. And he, um, he took acid a lot. And, um, and there was one after we'd had some, some conversations about it, we were talking about Chinese medicine and, or your chi, for example. And, um, he kept on asking me to put it in his framework. Like, give me the, you know, give me the, the, um, the, give me something in the Western understanding that I can, I can use to understand the word chi or these sort of things. I said, you know, it's a different kind of framework. It's experiential. Like, I can't, like, Unless you understand that there's another way of looking at things, then there's nothing I can I can give you in relation to this. And then um, we had a conversation that was fine. And then about a month later, he took you know a high dose of acid at, at New Year's Eve, and he came back to me. He was like, "Oh yeah, yeah, no, I think I've I think I've sorted that in my head. I think it's to do with electromagnetism, and um, which is nice." And he and he sort of had this new way of sort of understanding it. But yeah, I think there are there are some ways that. Um, People in the Church of Science um, may be able to communicate with with God or or this <laughs> this other force or this other symbolic meaningful aspects of their life, but uh, they generally will will need to be um, given permission through releasing their rational brain by force, I guess, or something like that. Uh, yeah, like a, like that was all interesting. Um, Kind of just uh, stimulates other thoughts. I I have friends who um, are pretty much uh, well and truly entrenched in the Church of Science, and um, they would call a lot of stuff that we're kind of interested in and talking about um, bunkin. You know, like it was kind of um, it's quite frustrating talking to them about stuff sometimes. But uh, I have a, have a, have a general feeling that you know, like uh, with various um, good stuff that we're involved in, that um, you only have to wait a good fifteen to twenty years for science to 
to discover it. And then they'll be calling it good stuff. And then they'll be saying that they discovered it. And then they'll be making money out of it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, that was one of the ways that I stopped getting so frustrated with like my family, my friends and stuff. Because, yeah, when you first get into this stuff, it's amazing and it changes your life completely and it's so beneficial and it fills you with joy and all these various different things, you know. And and you develop systems of or you discover systems of medicine that could help everyone around you and you see and you're like, "Oh my god, if only." But um I when I was trying to convince people of it or, or provide I just come up against these walls and it would make me uh, bitter towards um, not the church of science, but science itself and, and methods of scientific inquiry and like double blind trials and these various things that were being put in front of me as reasons, like qualifications that weren't met for them to engage with me on these on these new um, areas of inquiry. And um, yeah, one day I just sort of realized, wait a minute, if I'm right, they're going to find out. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't need to worry like yeah link there's nothing wrong with science itself it's it's just a tool and it and it always has been a tool and has its limitations and it has its strengths and it has a lot of strengths the problem is with scientists you know like and and it's it's with you know like over the last uh 20 30 40 50 years you know with the field of medicine that we're interested in you know like how how much scientific uh how much um, uh, uh, research dollars has gone into the application of shiatsu, the acup- uh, acupuncture, homeopathy, da-da-da-da-da, not much at all. And if it does go into it, it's, a, it's trying to totally debunk it. Acupuncture has actually survived quite well as far as scientific inquiry is concerned uh, because it's so damn good. But um, homeopathy struggled with the system, you know, like, and I think the system struggled with homeopathy, for example, as well. Um, but as far as the um, uh, the total amount of research, yeah. if you look at it, you know, like it would be 99.9999% has gone into drug research and the 0.00001% has gone into uh, the whole whole other aspects which we're interested in, you know, and it's kind of like that's a little bit of an imbalance, I reckon. Slightly. Uh, but at the same time, uh, uh, one of the things I love about our styles of medicine is that we can research in uh, reality itself. Uh, so I have a friend who's an anaesthetist, and uh, often we talk about, I talk about my cases, he talks about his cases, and he's really interested in pain management and acupuncture as, as a, a way of thinking for pain management. Uh, so, uh, for, for example, recently we were talking about C-sections and uh, recovery after C-sections, and I asked him if they have a drug that they can use to inject into a muscle that will relax the muscle. Because when I'm treating someone post a C-section, what I'm trying to do is relax all of the fascial sheaths which have been cut and, and re-stitched. Uh, and that tends to help incredibly with, with the pain. Um, but if you were to put Botox or something into those muscles, then from an anesthetist point of view, then you'd, you'd get um, amazing uh, pain reduction uh, things just from from structural change. Anyway, I, I digress massively. Uh, yeah, so um, we were talking about all these things and, and he had to do a whole bunch of research into it. And, and I laughed and I said, when, when I have to do research, I just stretch a little bit and, you know, like put some needles in myself and, you know, like uh, I can, uh, yeah, we have this research that we can do in reality itself. Whereas uh, to, to research drugs, you have to go through, like, you can't just t- take a drug yourself and see what it does anymore. Like that's, 
that's not um, science doesn't practice itself that way anymore. There was a hero, heroic age of science, but now it's very much this, uh, you know, like like the Catholic Church, everything is is partitioned and partitioned, and everyone is doing these little bits, and people aren't really concentrating on the whole, and there's not yeah, like it's a church. So, how does the um, subjective research re-enter the the like mainstream scientific framework? Because like what you're talking about, like to do research within your own body, um, I've found to be probably one of the most useful, like in terms of my life in general. I mean, I don't know if that's actually a statement I can make. Like, obviously, I get a lot of information from Only you can research. make that statement. Well, yeah, sure. <laughs> but I get a lot of information from science for sure, like as in scientific research, double-blind trials, all that sort of stuff. I, I take that information, I use it in my life. It's, it's technology. It's having a huge effect on my life. But in terms of like my diet or, uh, or ways of treating issues in my body uh, or ways of engaging with other people and ways of, you know, operating the world. Um, it's only really been through um, self-experimentation. And, and there have been experiences, for example, like, uh, you know, taking ayahuasca or, or San Pedro or these various um, uh, different plant medicines that are completely subjective experiences that... Um, that were amazing, uh, it was amazing research into my mind that no one could have ever done a, a clinical trial to explain to me. No one could have ever proven uh, these kind of results to me. But um, What kind of results? Uh, ways of understanding myself and, and relationships with other people, ways of, um, I mean, I mentioned... Um, some of my ayahuasca experience in relation to like protecting myself before treatments, but it was it was little things like um, uh, relationships between my parents and myself, relationships between between myself and my grandparents who I never actually met. Um, I, I, it's a it's a it's a barrel of worms for me to go into. Um, but my it's a it's a what sorry it's a it's a barrel of worms for me to go into. Like it's a black hole. Oh, I, I was talk about I it was kind of interested in it. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe I'll I'll get into it. Um, but uh, I guess what I'm what I'm what I'm asking is um, how how can the subjective experience be revalidated uh, within within our society, like uh, in terms of research, in terms of like anecdotal evidence, not being like a stigmatized thing, or is that just too tough a question to ask? <laughs> I'm not sure that it's not. I, I'm not sure that like I think that. Um there's a lot of good people out there doing a lot of good work sure. and what they're interested in is um, the way um, human beings and, and people and societies uh, feel and think. Um, I think science has uh, some problems with the um, the, um, the the way you gather um, data and information in yeah. those, in those those kind of situations it kind of wants a whole lot of uh, facts really whereas subjective experience you know like uh, I'm sitting here going well subjective experience is a fact. <laughs> Hey, you know, like if you want to go um, kind of out there, like I, I've just thought of a book that was one of, you know how you kind of have these major books that kind of transform a part of your life? One of those books was, and uh, and uh, it, it, 
was written by a woman called Jane Roberts. So I was wondering if you guys had come across this, actually. Jane Roberts. Jane Roberts was kind of interesting, and she was writing this book uh, around about, um, I think, late 50s, early 60s. She was a bit of a stoner, really, you know, like, and uh, she was an author. And one day she was kind of sitting at a typewriter and she kind of just um, flaked and um, she woke up and she had all of this stuff written on a typewriter. And it just wasn't her normal stuff, you know, like she was writing books about whatever she was writing about and this stuff was kind of like a bit different. So to cut a long story short, what actually happened to her is she became one of these and these were kind of really popular in the late 80s and early 90s and probably even now I don't take too much notice of who's channeling what these days but nevertheless um, she channeled an entity called Seth now well, Seth speaks oh uh, look yeah. you know like <laughs> how could you not like Seth because Seth's such a nice name <laughs> <laughs> but like Seth Speaks, did I have I spoken to you about Seth no, Speaks? No, no, no. I've actually listened to um, an audio book of, of some of this stuff. Well, be, well, like because there was a number book, number of books uh, written by Jane Roberts. Uh, really, you know, like she's she's the author, but like she had nothing to do with it. She was kind of like just the uh, mechanism by which um, Seth came through. She had a partner, and I can't remember his name, but he was—he kind of scribed. It, it got to got to the stage where she would just start channeling Seth, and Seth would have conversations with the partner, and the partner and Seth were really close. Whereas Jane Roberts and Seth weren't really because she couldn't didn't know what she was channeling, so it was kind of interesting like that. So the relation, the real relationship was between, and Seth was kind of in lots of ways more interested in the partner because as a, um, a, a soul than he was in Jane Roberts, so to speak. Jane Roberts just had the mechanism for um, him, if you say that, to enter the world, our world, and have the conversation. But I was so interested that you mentioned Seth Speaks because there were a number of books with interesting titles, like uh, they also wrote um, the, the Nature of Personal Reality, which became a slightly tedious book where they kept on saying the same thing, that we create our own reality. But Seth Speaks was um, it had really interesting chapter headings <laughs> and that was the book that I was first introduced to and it was like death-like experiences in life and I, I'm going, who doesn't want to read that? Death-like <laughs> experiences in life. Well, that, look, that um, relates directly to the ayahuasca experience. Uh, these, these uh, if, if you don't, I, I can talk about it for a moment if you guys don't mind hearing me. Sure. Um, so, basically, when uh, when you take ayahuasca, you're you're encouraged or you're explained to by the shaman uh, that you're building a relationship with the plant itself. And um, if I'm not sure if you know about the process of ayahuasca and, and how it's consumed, no, nothing, so, nothing. Okay, so ayahuasca is one plant, and um, it's also the brew itself. So most people think of ayahuasca as just the brew, but it's actually a mixture of uh, ayahuasca and chacruna. So, chacruna is a plant that contains, um, I think, a high quantity of uh, dimethyltryptamine. And so, um, the problem with dimethyltryptamine is when you ingest it um, into your stomach, it just um, it, your stomach just metabolizes, metabolizes it too quickly and you don't really have the experience. But if you ingest the ayahuasca first, it has a inhibiting function to the metabolism of the dimethyltryptamine sure. and it allows you to have a 
you know, six hour experience on, on um, this visionary substance. And so, um, it's, it's really interesting because my mind is, is conditioned to be quite skeptical in that, but I try to, to let it go and actually go with these romantic notions when I have these experiences. And it's, it's, it was one of the most beautiful things I've ever done in my life. And for me in particular, um, the most, the, I've done it quite a few times now, but the, the peak of it all was this one night uh, where it unleashed a spinning motor of insight within my own brain. Now, I, um, the experience for people who don't know is um, that you ingest this quite disgusting tasting brew and then you sit in what's called a maloka, which is like a large kind of you know tent-like structure um, and everybody's sort of on their own little uh, sort of mattress. Oh, yeah. How many people are uh, – is, is it like a ceremony? Yeah, yeah. There was like – when I did it in South America, there was about maybe 20 people in the room, maybe more, but there would have been space for maybe 30 or 40 people in this And, kind of and, and they're all uh, taking the same substance at the same time. Yes, but the shaman has his own brew as well as, as a brew that he was giving to us. Like the first few nights that we did it, we had this other brew, but um, people were – having pretty dark, intense experiences and, and maybe not having the visionary aspect they wanted. So he, um, on the third ceremony, he brought out his his own brew that he prefers to have, which is a lot pinker. Like the color of it was way pinker than the usual brownie color that I'm used to. And um, yeah, it was a lot more visionary. It was the most visionary experience that I've ever had on ayahuasca. But um, essentially, you, you drink you drink the stuff and it, it goes around the circle. Everyone sort of comes up to the shaman and he, you have your dosage. And the funny thing is because I have quite a high tolerance to it. And so, in the past, I would, I would drink some and then try to hold it down and then nothing would happen and then I'd have to drink some more. And so, I got to the point where I realized I should just drink heaps <laughs> right at the start and, and that seemed to work. So, this one night, I, I drank it all and you sit down and then you have this process of waiting for it to come on while simultaneously simultaneously becoming quite nauseous. So, you know, I'm, I'm sitting in some sort of cross-legged position or, or meditation posture and, and just waiting and then these waves of sort of nausea are coming up and my stomach's starting to um, get hotter and hotter in various ways and, and you're also are on quite a strict diet leading up to it so you don't eat um, anything past lunch and what you do eat in lunch and breakfast is, is really plain kind of food. But anyway, so it, it, it starts to come on and... Um, as it comes on after about an hour to an hour and a half, um, generally speaking, most people will then purge it out. So, so pe- people are vomiting. Oh yeah, and and they they you know, like I'm kind of thinking of <laughs> uh, a, a whole lot of people in a tent throwing up yeah. and feeling really ill. So they have their own private bucket. Yes, they do. So you got your little. It's bucket. catered for. Vomiting is catered for. Um. <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. And um, the, the, just one little side note about the bucket. Uh, on my first ayahuasca experience, um, when I finally did purge, I purged into this bucket and I was in such a heightened, joyous, amazing... Like it's, You can't explain, I guess, the state, but the, the older state of consciousness I was in, I looked down at my bucket of vomit and I cradled it like a child. Like I was just like, <laughs> I was in love with it. I was just like, I looked, I was like, I looked at all this stuff that I purged out because again, we're talking about this symbolic stuff. Like when you purge this stuff out of your body, it's a physical, mental, emotional, spiritual purge. Like you, you, you don't need to 
rationalize that in your head in the moment. Like you feel it. You you vomit out all of this crap that you don't need anymore. And um, and and that, and that's that's what the tradition says. Well, uh, yeah, I guess so. So I'm gonna do it, and that's my experience of it. Um, but. Uh, yeah, gee, see, I, I, whenever I talk about this stuff, I always want to go right back to the start. But I'll just talk about this one particular night that was really, really profound. Um, so, uh, leading up to it, I wrote down a bunch of questions about what I wanted to learn from the plant. Uh, one of them was how do I protect myself more? One of them was uh, to do with the relationship with my mother and like kind of how I can sort of sever that to become my own my own man, I guess, rather than sort of a, a child. Um, various other things to do with my ex-girlfriend and um, and one of the questions was to do with like aliens, you know, like I was just like, what, what do I want to know about? I want to know about, you know, anything. So, I wrote this list down and during the experience, when the the peak started coming on and, and I purged, um, essentially, this, this, this insight would just be flooding into my brain and I would be so grateful and so like, uh, yeah, just so grateful for what I was learning and I couldn't believe like how specific and how intelligent and how, um, how comprehensive the, the teachings that I, were getting were, that I was getting were that I'd be just so grateful and so grateful and I was also quite tired <laughs> by this week because it's quite late at night and, um, and I'd be like, okay, okay, that's enough. Like, thank you, thank you so much and I, I, would, I would sort of um, lie down and be like, I'm tired. I've, I've learned all I could possibly learn. That's fine and as I would sink into this sort of state of relaxation, the, then the motor would just start spinning faster and faster and faster and faster and then I'd get new insight about other things that I'd asked and I'd spring back up again and have these crazy experiences. The shaman might come over and sort of hold my hand and chant Icaros into it, which in that state, like you, you understand what a shaman can actually do. Icaros are like little chants, like these kind of uh, chants in their native language, which in the area I was, was Shipibo. But like, uh, you know, you can hear a chant when you're, in a normal state of consciousness and you're like, oh, this is beautiful and you might feel certain sensations in your body. When you, someone chants or shaman chants in that specific way when you're on these substances, you you feel it, you see it, like you, it's completely different. Like you understand what it is that they're doing. And over there, it's like a hospital. It's like surgery. Like the, they come in and they treat sick people and they, you know, they perform surgery on them with, with their chanting, with the medicine, with, with various things. Um, but one really funny moment, for, there's, there's two kind of funny moments that night. Um, one was at, at one point, um, I, I, was, I was sitting there and I said, okay, so what about this God thing? <laughs> and I said, and the funny thing about my interpretation of it is that plants are slow. So, so like I would ask it something and then the insight would come maybe like a minute later or a minute and a half later. So, it wasn't, wasn't this sort of like instant response to this thing talking to me. But when I asked about God, like I said, I asked about God and then, and then I just sat there for a while and I'd almost sort of forgotten that I'd even asked about God. But then about a minute or two later, this feeling started bubbling up inside of me. And like I get really excited and I also like laugh a lot. And this feeling of, of you know, the classic, the giggles. Like everyone's had the giggles from maybe smoking pot or whatever it is or, or taking some stuff. It's just... So the giggle starts to spring up inside of me, but you gotta understand, like in this maloka, it's mostly silent except for the chanting. It's it's dark. You can barely see anyone around you, and people are often having really intense emotional experiences. And there's like a sereneness to it in in this particular place that you kind of don't want to 
break necessarily. <laughs> so as this thing starts to spring out of me, I'm just like chuckling a bit like... <laughs> and then I, I kind of put it back inside myself and then... <laughs> and it would start to break out again. And then at one point, I've just got... <laughs> And I snorted. I love a good snort. <laughs> and that was enough for me to lose my shit. And like, I've had the giggles before, but this was intense. It was like giggles literally trying to force their way up my body, out into my head, and like pushing up. I mean, I don't know, the crown chakra or whatever, but it was just pushing it out of the top of my head. And it was so intense, and I couldn't st- I couldn't stop it. And by this point now, everyone in the book is like starting to giggle and laugh. And, and like, everybody's just like hilariously laughing at me and I'm like you know got all this parts of embarrassment because I you know like I like to be the center of attention when I'm performing and such but there's certain instances where I don't want to be the center of attention and I don't want to feel like I'm um, encroaching on other people's sure. space but in this moment I, so I'm, I'm like jumping around I'm like I'm like getting into like meditation postures and trying to like hot ground my energy and hold it down <laughs> like, and that would last a few seconds and then I'd do like and so like crying with laughter again and I'm doing all this stuff and then finally I just said to her I'm, I'm like okay please please stop <laughs> okay I'm sorry I was like God I'm sorry just please that's enough I can't take anymore please stop and then about a minute and a half later it just gradually eased back off again and I was and, and as soon as I felt it fell it down like subside for a second I just slammed my head into the pillow and like tried to go to sleep like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like I'm caught it. I'm not getting up. I'm not like I'm not risking this happening again. And you know, and mind you, like I'm thinking to myself, oh god, you know, I've I've uh, all these people. I've you know, I've ruined their their like they were probably in their own thing, and now you know, uh, it's all about me or whatever it was. And I felt kind of embarrassed and bad. And I just felt this person. They came up and they just said, Link, Link, and they touched you. And I, I sort of sit up, and he just says. Thank you, brother. And he, he opens his eyes. There's this French guy, um, I mean, who's a lovely man. He was next to me. Um, he matches next to me. And he just opens his arms and, like, we hugged. And it was, like, the only way I can describe it was, like, we became a tree. Like, that sounds so fucking hippie. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for, for going there. But, like, literally, we just sort of embraced each other. And I just felt like we were just this one sort of tree together. And it was beautiful because it's that, that classic, these, and, these lessons again that I'm talking about learning, like someone could explain to me and say to me over and over, like Link, you know, you don't, you shouldn't worry about um, being insecure in front of other people, or you shouldn't worry about um, it, embarrassment and and being yourself, or like having an experience like this where you were you were joyous. Like I was joyous. I was I was sharing joy around the whole fucking Maloka. You were. Uh, I was kind of a bit interested in the start of the story, but like I don't want to stop your um, flow either. I'll just- Oh, yeah, go. Uh, you, you, yeah, you I'll just go. finish this little thing, but um, that in that moment, like that was the experience that I needed to have to to once again reinforce this idea that, like, don't stop worrying about this shit. Just like, just be yourself and let it out, and it's okay, and that's fine. And it's these kind of experiences that you need to have the experience of it. Um, you don't necessarily need to take drugs to have that kind of experience, but you need to experience it. People can't teach it to you through persuasion necessarily yeah sure like i was kind of interested in in a little rewind from the point of view that it seemed to me if i remember correctly that uh, part of the start of the last bit of that story the giggle story was that in response you were you were just about to put your head down and another rush came on and it was kind of like the, the the god question 
Well, the God question was just one that I asked. Um, it wasn't necessarily one of the ones that came out of me um, having to try to go to sleep. Um, yeah. But oh, so, so like, yeah, just to clarify, I was just, just wondering whether, you know, like the, the giggle episode, the... Yeah, it was in relation to... I, and I don't, want to, I don't want to actually belittle yeah. it by calling it the Giggle episode, but like, uh, right. yeah, uh, I just thought that that was related to your question, that's oh, all. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. Like that, like, so God mind, has a sense of humour. Well, I, I assume so. <laughs> I think God's a poet. Uh, <laughs> I think uh, God is everything. But, um, but yeah, it was... But it, yeah, it's interesting. Like, of course, if I was to talk about about this experience, I can't say to people that I absolutely communicated with a plant and I absolutely learned, you know, about the nature of God in relation to giggles and stuff. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really fucking matter. Like, I had an amazing experience and it's enriched my life and uh, the understandings that I got from it, I'm able to use in a practical way in various instances in my life. So, um, yeah, I guess the... Yeah, there's just these various things that I've picked up along the way that I realize are, are functional um, rather than provable, I guess. And um, and they, they're born out of these subjective experiences. And uh, yeah, that's, that's where the ayahuasca kind of happens. Yeah, that's a mighty fine subjective experience. <laughs> um, yeah, I'd, look, Link, I've never heard of this substance. So, you know, like uh, that was really interesting. Well, it's, it's, well, I think it's one of the most important things that's um, going around at the moment. Like, it's coming out of the Amazon and it's spreading around the world. Uh, and I think for, for a really useful, specific purpose in that, like, there's a spiritual crisis going on in the world. You can call it whatever It would you be kind of nice if people weren't taking it at parties and that the, the actual, the presence of the shaman was, like, a good idea, don't you think? Yeah, well, I, I sort of try to encourage my friends like this, but it's hard to talk to them about it because a lot of my friends do psychedelics at, at doofs and raves and stuff and they have a great time. You know, and I'm 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 not one to tell people not to do things, but then people have really bad experiences on psychedelics at events or or start touching these places that are unmapped. Like the, the world of our consciousness and the world of altered states of consciousness is an unmapped territory. And one of the best ways you can access it is via these these substances and it's it's you know you can prove it in a way by doing it like if you want to understand these worlds or, or understand what people are talking about you've got to do it um but some of my friends uh i think would really benefit from a shamanic experience because there there are there are safer ways to do these things there are ways to do these have these experiences with people who have done them their entire life and it's um, an interesting thing with our culture and party culture in that um, people don't have that kind of respect for these for these substances because they're considered something to do at a party or so even marijuana for example like marijuana you can have a sacred ceremony for it and 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 smoke it and meditate with it and use it to access certain parts of whatever your consciousness but that's not generally the way people are introduced to it. They're, it's bongs in high school or it's a spliff at a party or whatever. And again, these aren't necessarily bad things, but I, it's, I'm trying to think of a way. Like, imagine somebody gave you a hammer and you, for your entire life, you were using the flat, like the side of it to try to 
to hammer things in or like like and no one ever You mean was, that's not how you use a hammer? Well you can. You can still get the nail in, but it's like awkward and, and you might hurt yourself and like various things. It's like these things are tools, there's ways you can and there are people who know I mean hammers are pretty basic thing, but you know, there are technicians who use hammers their entire life or or maybe a more extreme tool or a machine. Like you would go to a professor or or a, t- a trade school to learn a technical craft. But people are playing with tools of consciousness and with no regard to, to the experts in the field. And, and the experts in the field might be, you know, shamans in another country or they might be shamans locally. Uh, but yeah, I think it's really important that these things become more widespread. Well, that's the end of part two of our interview with Scott Brisbane. Uh, In future episodes, Scott will actually be co-hosting with me and we'll be speaking to other people such as Scott Billings, uh, Con Margaritas, Angela Lane, Paul Mofsessian, and we'll be turning the tables and interviewing Jeremy Nemet as well. So stay tuned for all that. Uh, Check out the website, inkalot.net. Yeah, I'm really excited about the content of the upcoming episodes. These first few have been great and they just get better and better as we go. So uh, yeah, keep checking out the website for more content. Uh, subscribe to us on iTunes or, or your podcast app. Uh, I use Podcast Addict myself. It's really good. Yeah, and if you'd like to support the show, you can give us a rating on iTunes or a review, or you can just uh, promote it and circulate it via social media or a friendly USB to a friend. If you're interested in being a guest on the show yourself, please get in contact. Or if you know a teacher or a practitioner that you think would be a really interesting guest, Uh, the kind of teacher you've always wanted to hang out with after class but perhaps never got the chance to, Uh, send them our way and, and you can hang out with them via the magic of cyberspace. Scott's Drew Yoga class is on weekly at the Shiatsu College, so for more information on making an appointment with Scott, you can email me at shiatsulink at gmail.com. That's S-H-I-A-T-S-U-L-I-N-K at gmail.com. Or you can contact the Australian Shiatsu College on 03 9387 1161. If you have any interest in becoming a Shiatsu therapist or just want to find out what it's all about, Head on down to 103 Evans Street, Brunswick, and say hello to the staff there. Uh, Jenny and Marie, who run the college, are just wonderful, wonderful people. Uh, they'll be more than happy to tell you all about it and, and show you around the space. It's, it's uh, a really beautiful building, and there's something about the, the energy of the place that's it's quite calming and yeah, nurturing and, and just lovely. You'll also find a range of other workshops and classes available there, as well as clinic spaces that can be rented if you're a practitioner. For more information, go to www.australianshiatsucollege.com.au. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Please visit www.inkalot.net for more episodes. Have a lovely day. Hope you join us again soon.